0: Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Brent W. Roberts, Brent W. Roberts is a professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and specializes in human personality. During our conversation, Brent talks about the big five personality traits, what personality is, the differences between the big five and the Myers-Briggs personality test, diversity in human personality, the role of genes and sex differences in personality, evolutionary psychology, the stability of one's personality over time, How to decrease trait neuroticism and practical applications of personality research. I've been fascinated by the Big Five ever since I learned about it a few years ago. It's clear to me that there's a massive public hunger to learn about human personality, what it is, how we know what we know, and how it can better illuminate who we are as a species and as individuals. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Brent W. Roberts. Brent, thank you so much for doing this. I mentioned this before I recorded. I've been looking forward to doing a show exclusively on the Big Five for quite some time now. So I'm happy to be doing this. Welcome. It's great to meet you.
1: Nice to meet you too.
0: I wanted to start with kind of the basics here. And I thought maybe the best question to start the conversation might be just positing the question to you of what do we mean by personality when we talk about personality and what specifically does the big five
1: personality traits really mean to you so we're only supposed to talk for about 45 minutes right because <laughs> you just asked me to summarize my 15-week course which i don't get through most of the material in and five minutes or less um so th- there are a couple of different levels when it comes to the definition of personality um and i think you need to kind of give each its its yeah its respect so to speak. Um, from my vantage point uh, as a personality psychologist, I see personality psychology as subsuming the the entire spectrum of ways in which each of us differs from each other. Hmm. Um, and so in that respect, it's a much broader idea than what most lay people think of, for example, or even many of my colleagues in psychology. Uh, so when I think of it, I think of individual differences and in something like the big five, which we can cover in a sec. Those are, you know, we call them personality traits, um, which is especially if you have the folks from evolutionary psychology or evolution on, it's a bit of a confusing term to use, at least in a relationship to the way they use the the term trait. They use it to reflect a a species specific feature. Um, We use it to reflect individual differences in kind of basic patterns that are not cognitive ability, for example. Hmm. Um, And some lay people will carve off and some psychologists will carve off personality and say, it's the big five. I want to include things like you know your cognitive abilities, your other skills, physical um or so- social and interpersonal, um your big five, um your motives, your interests, yeah, the things you love to do, uh, which are not the same thing as your 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 big five and of course, you have your story your your individual experience um and the thing that m- makes you who you are. Um, so we, we have these personality traits and our motives and interests and abilities, but they're manifest in our you know, typical our, our, let's say our historical period. Um, and you know we have our own particular way of manifesting those qualities within our time. And our space and those those experiences in our our lives actually have an effect on those functions, whether we retain our cognitive functioning over a long period of time, whether we lose it, whether we get more conscientious or not, and things of that sort happen because of the life stories that we live. So I like to think of it as a big thing, and it has Mm -hmm. at least these four categories of information. I want to know somebody. I want to know what they're good at. I want to know what they tend to do on a regular basis. I want to know what they want to do. And I want to know their story. And it's usually in reverse. I usually like to know their story before these other things. Like that. Um, and you know, those are the big buckets of information that I'm going to seek out if I'm going to really do a good job of trying to understand who you are. Um, the big five are one particular subset of that. And mm-hmm. they're the regularities that we see in the characteristic ways that people think, feel, and behave. Which is a horrible definition. It's a it's the standard definition that we use has no counterfactuals, so it's really not very useful. Um, but it's a nice sing songy definition that we give people. Um, the most important aspects of that, at least from a, a scientific perspective, are the emphasis on you know continuity um, and I like to to invoke automaticity. Mm. Um, so the, these are the things that you do regularly without thinking about it. You can think about it. We ask you to think about it whenever we give you one of our standard personality inventories, our non-standard ones. The MBTI comes to mind. Um, And, you know, for better or worse, that's our our usual way of getting at these things. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we're trying to get at is the way you do things on a regular basis. And, you know, that, that could be something you're consciously aware of or not. Um, so mm-hmm. we do like to ask you, but we'd also might like to ask your friends, <laughs> your loved ones um, to, to weigh in and say, this is the way Daniel really is. Mm-hmm. Um, don't, don't listen to him. He, he's a really nice guy. He, you know, he said, it's not true. Um, so that's the type of stuff that we, we like to do to get it. And, and the, the big five come in big, five big categories. It was extroversion, how you engage um, socially with the world. You want to lead or do you want to follow? The you know, agreeableness, um, which is, do you want to be a good t- team member or do you want to be your own lone wolf and out there carving your own way through life? Um, conscientiousness, which is uh, better, better summarized as grit, because that's only mm-hmm. one syllable and it's a lot easier to understand. Um, so you know, how hardworking are you going to be? Are you going to be nose to the grindstone type? Are you going to be, as I like to describe my my daughters, efficient um, in their approach to um, <laughs> the amount they like to work? Then there's emotional stability, which is uh, the way you handle stress. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have a very bright radar screen and and you notice lots of things that are are cause of of concern? Or do you have a dark radar screen and nothing seems to affect you? Um, Mm -hmm. That would be somebody that we would think of as being emotionally stable. And then the last category is openness, um, which is the broadest and the least well or least coherent um, area that includes things like creativity. Open different ideas, curiosity, intellectually. Uh, let's say, uh, let's say, intellectually inclined, as opposed to being more concrete and and maybe incurious would be the way I describe people who be on the low end. Hmm. And those big big five are they're they're a working taxonomy. Uh, they're not, you know, uh, you know, some people like to think of them as you know, pillars of human nature. They're regularities. We see them a lot. Uh, and they should not be ignored, uh, but they're they're one way or one uh, way of understanding the way that personality traits can be organized, and it's been incredibly useful for us as a scientific a, a field to to adopt the Big Five as a framework. But it's a framework, and it's mm. a little bit loose. And there are other quali- you know, qualities that are out there that might be included. Honesty is one that we sometimes consider, and then there's also levels of analysis uh, so that you might want to um, think about it because there's some brilliant work by people like Jean Saussier that so across cultures that two work better than five. If you want to do something better, maybe you can go down to fourteen. You know, you've mm-hmm. got a, a lot of different choices about where to go. But a, as a field, we we've, we've to varying degrees said five is good for now. I mean, let's stick <laughs> with those. <laughs>
0: I, I have to imagine you hear this a lot in you know, students and in people who learn about what you do, that the, you know, it's common in our culture that people talk about the Myers-Briggs tests or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. other other forms of categorizing human personality. I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak to the veracity of the big five versus some of the more common personality assessments that people talk about in America and around the world. What what distinguishes the big five in your mind um, as a higher standard, if that is your perspective, over some of the other more common personality assessments that I think a lot of people listening to this might be aware of?
1: Um, I, I think the way I... Th- would recommend thinking about the big five is kind of the same way we do it's your it's your validated barometer mm. um and and there's a feature of the big five that that's really important to keep in mind that i already mentioned in some respects it shows up everywhere right whenever we measure things you know, it, it kind of it reveals itself there's a beautiful paper by luke smiley's lab of australia that they just published recently is showing look you take you know, lots of different measures and you kind of look at it from a big five perspective and they all seem to belong. I like to argue that the categories of the big five are like sandwiches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they get along, but they might fight. No, you know, there's different <laughs> facets and there's different levels, and but it's a really good system for understanding what's going on. So if anybody comes to you with an assessment system that, that is focused on something like this, and there's lots of tests out there, the MBTI, the color test, yeah. you know, Lots of different tests, especially in industry. And they might argue a lot about how they're not personality or they're not personality traits or or you know they're they're not the big five. Well, you know what? You can't have both. <laughs> so if the big five is something that tends to show up and organize most everything out there, if you take an assessment system that has to do with out of this kind of functioning, not the, your cognitive functioning and your your, your power test, so to speak, but like what you typically do, you're probably going to run into the big five. And the MBTI is a beautiful example. It measures for the big five, hmm. not as well as I want to when it comes to my scientific endeavors, but it's not, you know a lot of people like to try to establish their intellectual um, <laughs> chops by criticizing the big five. That's, anti-science and invalid and stuff it's not invalid. nothing you know nothing is invalid. What it does is it approximates something of the big five to a better to a lesser or greater degree, right? And what the MBTI did, which was brilliant from a marketing perspective, was it it eliminated all the negative qualities. So it got rid of neuroticism and emotional stability altogether mm. and then it kind of it, it it took out the negative aspects of you know, extroversion and conscientiousness and agreeableness and openness. Um, and then you're left with a really friendly, wonderful, validating thing that no matter who you are, you're positive, right? So from a marketing angle, that's it is why they make so much money, and it's why mm. everybody loves it, and why everybody takes it. Um, and it's probably a little bit why we we tend to gr- grumble <laughs> about it. But it's 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 you know it's a pretty you know mediocre way of getting it for the big fun. Mm. And so you know it, it, is it invalid? No. Um, do, is there a scoring approach? Uh, valid? No, we 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 should not categorize people. Um, you yeah, know, there's uh, never been any any validity for that. It's a gross oversimplification of the way you know humans work. We, we are built in continua. We're not built in categories. Uh, you know, um, and so, but is it wrong? Um, completely? Not completely either. And you know, it it appeals to another aspect of, of human nature. Humans want to be validated. So the MBTI is good for that. It mm. also is the fact that we like to think in categories. So we like it. Yeah. You know, we like to do things in a more expedient fashion, more efficient. Um, and so by, by categorizing the, the information that we, we glean for the MBTI it makes it a lot easier for people to understand and to communicate. And again, mm. so it's, it's, a, it's brilliant from a marketing standpoint. You get rid of the negative um, aspects of human functioning and then you make it really, really simple and you have created the most popular test in the world, but it is in no uncertain terms, still covering some of the domains of the big. Five. And that's true for the other types of tests that are out there.
0: I want to quote, uh, we talked about this a little bit before uh, we started recording that Rob Henderson put us in touch with each other. And I think we both have admiration and, and love for his work. I'm going to quote something from him that he wrote on the Big Five and and get. I want to get your thoughts on it. This is from um, an article that he recently published, which he's referencing some of the work of Jordan Peterson. But I think these are his words where he says, by far, the greatest range of diversity among people is personality, rather than the usual categories society tends to concentrate on. I thought that was such a, a pithy, yeah. and interesting point that of all the differences that we can categorize between human beings around the world, that in his mind, as I understand that line, it's personality that is the biggest indicator of different, uh, you know, a different type of person. And I wanted to put it to you to ask you how you think about this. He he also writes later in this article about how people of significantly different personalities are really filtering and seeing the world differently than other people who are, for example, on opposite ends of the extroversion scale. I'm just curious for you how how you think people can try to make sense of that the greatness and range. In human personality, to maybe make sense of people that they come across that are drastically different
1: than they are. That's a great question. Um, it's a nice quote. I don't know if I agree with it empirically, mm. uh, because I think it's one of those uh, empirical questions that are almost impossible to answer. Mm. Um, and what comes to mind is, are a couple of things. One, there there's not very much interesting covariance between what we think of as personality and what we think of as the large categories that we use to um, structure society. Uh, Personality is unrelated to cognitive ability. Personality is relatively unrelated to um, race and ethnicity. Um, Mm -hmm. Personality, and I'm going to piss off some of your listeners, is far less related to gender than some people would like to argue. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a bunch of evolutionary folks who, uh, let's say, spun the wheel in their favor when they analyzed the data. If you look at the differences between men and women, we're the same on extroversion. We're the same on most facets of agreeableness, except for neuroticism. Women are slightly better on conscientiousness. Neuroticism we differ on a d score of point four, and we don't differ on openness. You know, mm. if you add up all the differences and take the you know, um, um, you know the 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 potential maximum amount of difference, you can push it to something that looks big. But that's not the way it usually works. In any given mm. area within personality, we don't differ that much from each other. Mm. So in some respects, he's right from that angle where you know we use all these categories to structure our societies and our different cultures, uh, usually around demographics. And the mistake I think we often make is we think of those demographic aspects as giving us personality information. In that respect, Rob is, is totally correct. It's not. If you know somebody is a certain race or ethnicity, it doesn't provide you almost any information about their personality. You need to go to that. Whether the variance, you know, whether the variance is more or less really depends, in some respects. Sorry about the dollars. Um, on the question you're answering and asking, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. and, and there, I, I, that's why I'm I'm not necessarily willing to say sure. Yeah, Rob's right on that one, because in certain categories you know, being a male or female makes a huge difference in what happens to you in in your life or how a society is structured, far more important than your personality will have in terms of of your outcomes in your work or your love, for example. And so I'm I'm reticent to say, yeah, Rob's right. You know, the variability when it comes to, you know, human functioning is far greater on personality than it is these other things, because it really depends on the question you're trying to to address. Mm -hmm. And there I'm, I'm not willing to say I know enough. Um, about the relative magnitude of the effects of, of, race, ethnicity, gender, age, um, and, and other factors when it comes to these things to be able to say with, with a, the sound conclusion that, yeah, the variability there's greater or lesser. I think what, what we mostly see is there's lots of differences between people. They all have relatively small effects for most things that we care about in certain categories that count a lot. Yeah. Yep. And that, that's where, where it matters.
0: I think to clarify there, it it may have been that Rob was essentially paraphrasing Jordan's perspective. And I don't know if he was giving commentary specifically as to whether he fully agreed with that statement or not, but um, he he can obviously speak to that to give his perspective on it. But I I wanted to to hone in on something that you did mention there, which is that if I heard you correctly, the the biggest known difference in the big five between the genders is in trade neuroticism. And I'd love to, I think you said that uh, the difference was something like point four. I wanted to allow you to give that some space and explain exactly what that would mean to a a layperson who's not particularly you know steeped in the statistical analysis.
1: There, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I always like to category, to qualify it with some research that was done a long time ago by Dan Ozer, where he asked people to identify people who were different from each other. Hmm. and ask the question you know how, how different do people have to be on our scales for someone to be able to see it reliably you know we do all our science and we publish these things that are statistically significant like and sometimes they're you know hugely practically significant especially if you talk to the economists for example because you change social policy across you know, millions of people it has a, as a notable effect a lot of those effects aren't visible to the the naked eye and Dan Ozer's research showed that if you want to really see a difference between an extrovert and introvert on our scale, they have to be about a standard deviation different from each other. Um, which, when it comes to like our personality inventories, that's a whole scale point on a five point rating scale. You know, that's a three versus a four. Uh, when it comes to men and women, um, we differ at, a, at about half or a little less than half on um, a scale point. And so the difference is is notable from the perspective that it can be seen by scientists with our data, but it's probably not that visible, at least on individuals, um, on an individual basis, you know, to the naked eye. And so and the biggest ones are something like neuroticism. You might notice it across an aggregate of people, um, and that's where you notice it most. But with individual people, it's really hard to see. Hmm. I'm curious
0: if you are persuaded by some of the evolutionary psychology arguments there, because my understanding—and you can correct me if you think the this is this is wrong or the data suggests otherwise—but that you know, the two of the most noteworthy differences in the Big Five between men and women are neuroticism and I think it's trait agreeableness, and yep. that the the idea that that I had heard was that it's possible that the reason why that difference exists from the perspective of nature is that if women are going to have kids and do that successfully it actually is a benefit to have a more you know neurotic brain a more agreeable temperament in order to be able to perform that role you know six su- properly or successfully I don't, I don't know what your take
1: is on that but it was something i wanted to get your views on i'll i'll, I'll give you a set of questions to ask them <laughs> <Fine>. <laughs> So, And and these are just questions that I want to know the answer to before I render um, judgment on their thoughts. I I think their thoughts are reasonable given what they they have um, hooked up from evolutionary psychology. But so two two sets of questions in my mind are critical for whether we think this is the case. First Mm -hmm. is the genetics argument. Um, If there is uh, this difference and it has been pressed by evolution to be there, we will find a genetic difference between men and women Mm. on the signals for agreeableness and and neuroticism. To date, we haven't found it. Mm. I just got back from um, the Association of Research Personality Conference, saw the definitive um, data that's going to come out from uh, Ted Schwaba on the genetics of the Big Five. And one of the big conundrums about the Big Five is that we can't find a genetic signal when we do the right kind of genetics research, which is on the GWASH side of things. Um, There, you're getting a really small signal when it comes to how genes are going to be affecting or contributing to individual differences in personality traits in particular. Hmm. Um, The twin studies are not valid in this case because there's too much that's going on there that um, contributes to a much bigger signal. So the definitive statements coming from the GWAS folks, the GWAS folks, you're getting a signal under 10% and lower when it comes to what's going on with the big FOD. And I know of no one who's shown that that genetic signal is bigger or smaller for men or women hmm. there. You've got the data it's sitting out in repositories. It could be analyzed tomorrow. If you have the expertise, I can put you together with the people who have the expertise, the evolutionary folks know who they are. Um, hmm. They could test this. Um, hmm. And it would be, fa- I'd like to know the answer personally. So if it is the case that there is this evolutionary story that fits. Um, You will see a gender difference in the genetic contribution to agreeableness and neuroticism in the GWASH studies that we're doing. And it should be pretty big. (laughs) It should be detectable. Um, And I I don't know if it's true. I I honestly do not. And then we have the counter finding, which is a real commandment for us, which is that it doesn't seem to be uh, that there's a strong additive um, signal from genes. There's lots of different things going on. I'm not saying that personality isn't genetic. Whether it's, for example, a lot of dominance heritability, the the odd, quirky combination of your genes you get from your mom and your dad mm-hmm. um, contribute to who you are in a way that's not doesn't breed true, though so it doesn't have any evolutionary significance. So that's the first thing I'd want to know, um, mm-hmm. if they could answer that question. The data's out there. I'd be curious to know what they find. Um, the second one is, if it is the case that these differences matter for the survival and benefit of our offspring, then you would assume that... Parents' personality and parenting style would have a discernible effect on kids' well-being. Correct? Mm. Yeah. You don't see it. It doesn't. If you actually look at the data, and you ask the question, to what extent does the parents' personality and/or parent's style matter to the kids' personality? It doesn't and signals really small. Mm. Really, I mean. And by genetics friends and other we study other species are like welcome to my world. So it's not, yeah, small in this case might not be that that relevant. But I, I want to know why the relationship between parenting individual differences and the kids' outcomes. And I'm and by this I mean the long term ones that the evolutionary folks care about. Not whether you know if you're a good parent by some standards in developmental science, your kid is happier when they're three, but will they grow up to be a much more well-adjusted adult with a functioning personality that contributes to society in a positive way. Yeah. When you look at that as your outcome, there's, there's so little relationship between what we do as parents and what, what happens with our kids that it's hard to make the argument that these differences that we see matter in the, in the evolutionary sense. So I want those two questions answered. If we get those answered, then I, I'll be okay with saying, yeah, sure, you're okay. <laughs> yeah. So the data's there. They just need to, I think, ask that question.
0: That that seems that's a sobering fact. I think what you just mentioned about you know, the the role that parenting seems to play in the outcome of of children. I've heard that in other conversations that I've talked to very smart people
1: about. It depends well. on what your kids are. If if they're teenagers, it's a very liberating fact yeah. <laughs> then you, you might not be as distressed about your lack of ability to influence them.
0: You're off you're off the hook slightly.
1: Slightly. Not really. You're. It's worse, right? You you have all the responsibility and no authority. So <laughs> <laughs> it's I, it's like like many situations in life. <laughs> so, very true.
0: You know, in in going over some of the the subjects we've talked about today, I thought it might be helpful for you. And I I know you mentioned this earlier that this is a you know something like a fourteen week course that you you give. Um, I'm sure with an hour plus lecture every time. But for well, people and I drone are-
1: on. So I, I you know <laughs> sorry,
0: <laughs> we all do for for people that have not ever heard a description or a you know short um thumbnail description of what the ocean acronym differences really are or what the big five personalities really are, I wonder if you might be able to just tick through in in your mind kind of the the rules of thumb there of what the differences with the big five are and in any you know sort of short description that you think might be Enlightening to people or just interesting to people in general.
1: So there's a Crossetto, friend and colleague, has come up with a way of kind of making it simple well, simple for for us, which I like a lot. Um, so instead of five things, you can t- think about three. So how, how do you how do you behave with other people? Mm. Um, you know, it's a fundamental thing, you know, humans are more than a social species. we're, we're hugely dependent on each other for our well being and our functioning. Um, how are you going to go about negotiating your interpersonal relationships? That's extroversion and agreeableness. Hmm. Um, Those are the first two of the, of the big five. And they kind of really describe um, how you're going to go about relating to others. Are you going to lead? Or are you going to follow? As I said, are you going to do it in a friendly fashion or are you going to do it in an unfriendly fashion? Right. Hmm. That's the combination of extroversion and either agreeableness. That's the friendly leader or disagreeableness. That's the dominant you know, um forceful leader who's going to tell you what you should do and then ask questions later. Mm. Um that's that's in our world, you know, a combination of high extraversion and low agreeableness. Are you, you are you gonna be, you know, the person who's gonna that st- that step back and and not you know, participate and be cynical about what the persons are <laughs> doing in charge. That's low extroversion, low agreeableness. Um, and then there's, of course, the person who's going to be you know, probably the minion or the person who's going to follow along. That's you know, high agreeableness, low extroversion. So you know, I'll do whatever you want to say and, and be agreeable about it. And, and those two of the, the big five really capture the way we go about relating to one another. And, and it's not that the others aren't important for certain aspects of relationships, but the, the, if you want to think about relationships, those are the first two. The, uh, the other way to think about it is, is your emotional world. And that's kind of the combination of emotional stability and extroversion. Um, think of them as positive and negative affect. In some respects, you know, if you tend to have a bright radar screen for negative information and negative consequences of actions, you know, maybe slightly higher fears. You know, that's higher neuroticism. If you're one of those people who tends to be very positive about things, that's higher extroversion. Um, you can have the combination, right? You can have somebody who who is both. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're extroverted and neurotic. I like you know, these people are are yeah, they're sharing their neuroticism all the time, you know. And you know, you have these friends who who are always talking to you about what's going on, and you know that they're fun, but you know they make life more interesting by any means. Um, but they're both right, and then of course you can have introverted um, and neurotic, and and you know, oftentimes we think of people who are really shy, painfully shy. As that combination, you know, they're they're not out there with people, and they have more fears, and so on. And one of the fears they have are other people. You know, that's a shy person. We tend to experience that, especially when we're young. We're much less secure, and we tend to overcome that with age. But that that's the combination that you see in those two. And then, of course, you have the 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 not neurotic um, extroverted person. You know, we love that babble them around in the social settings because they, they don't have any any qualms about trying new things. They're doing stuff that would make other people blanch. So they're dancing on the dance floor um, mm. and, and really out there. Um, and then the, the third way to think about the big five is work style. Um, that's a combination of conscientiousness and openness. Mm. Um, again, are you someone who likes to put the nose to the grindstone um, and get things done, you know, in combination with whether you're curious, creative and, and active, right? That combination doesn't happen as often, um, as you might suspect. The the typical academic, for example, tends to be low on a lot of aspects of conscientiousness Mm. and high on the curiosity and Mm. and creativity side. I think I always argue to my my colleagues that uh, thank goodness for higher education. It's a last bastion for those of us who are not conscientious um, because we can still have a career. Um, Most jobs in the market tend to dictate that you be more conventional, more conforming, more hardworking in that Mm. sense. Um, and so, and, and really demand that. Then it's, then it asks the question, are you going to be the person who's going to be, you know, enacting what the leader says? That's, that's going to be low openness. Or are you going to be the person who's going to be trying to come up with new ideas? Um, and that's conscientiousness and, and, and openness together. So that I like his system because it, it tends to simplify, of course, and you just talk about interpersonal relationships, um, emotional style and, and work style and that captures the big five.
0: Brilliant, and I, I love the imagery of the the radar screen for yeah. testing the yeah. trade and so I think that's a that's a good way to to think about yeah. it. You know, this is something that I, I thought about right before uh, we connected on here. It is the you know I've done a, a variety of different shows on this podcast about political tribalism recently, and obviously yeah. this is a total tangent from what we've talked about so far. But you know, I wanted to again get your thoughts on this in general about how and you just talked about genes and the the lack of influence that oftentimes parents end up having on the the outcomes of their their children of the that temperament that political that personality temperaments that are kind of a stable part of your personality over your lifetime are hugely predictive of your political affiliations and that i wanted to see if you could articulate the connection between these five traits or the three categories you just spoke about in giving a rough synopsis of, you know, kind of the two-party system that we're in, in the spirit of just trying to understand people hey. who are politically different from you and how how affected they might be by their natural personalities.
1: Yeah, so the the relationships are pretty straightforward and and robust. Um, openness is your best predictor of political affiliation, at least in the United States. We, we, we have a very simple system, two party system, conservative, liberal, um, openness is the positive predictor of liberalism and negative predictor of conservatism. Um, and that's the biggest effect. I wouldn't call it huge. It's mm. there. Mm. Um, and it's good to understand in the sense that, um, people who tend to be more open to lots of things, lots of different ideas. Will tend to be liberal in their orientation. Uh, you know, th- there's lots of beefs against higher education for being a liberal institution. It's like, well, you selected us <laughs> for being curious because we're all scientists and we want to know about the world, and so that's where that bias comes from, right? Um, because you have a selection system which rewards that aspect of personality, because that's what our job is, um, and so you know th- that. When you see those intersections, like, oh, that institution is liberal, and it's, and, well, one, one reason is because we're being selected for those qualities. Um, the, the other domain where you see a little bit of a, of a relationship is conscientiousness, but not on the industriousness aspect, but more on what we think of as conventionality or traditionalism. So, are you more of a rule following um, person and um, your approach to the world? If you are, then you tend to be more conservative and less liberal. That effect size tends to be smaller. Um, these are really robust when it comes to uh, our you know system in the US and a relatively undifferentiated view of politics. And you can get much more differentiated, which some people do, you know, studying different aspects of, of you know contributing to the political body by voting or by campaign campaigning or whatever you might do. There's lots of different political behaviors. When you start differentiating that way, you start getting different um correlates. If you push the you know, the envelope into the more um, what you know? Back after World War II, they talked about the authoritarian personality. Um, so this is someone who wants you know the strong leader who imposes rules, and they're going to follow. Um, that's that that brings in low agreeableness and mm-hmm. and low openness. So that's the combination there. It's not as you know, it's not as germane to most of the political conversations we have in the United States because we're really talking about you know conservative and liberal, Republican and Democratic, and there the the personality um, correlates are a little less exotic let's just say um yeah i i
0: had heard that too about you were mentioning that related to university communities that i think rob may have mentioned this when i saw him in new york that that's also true about cities that large cities are a magnet for open for trade openness for people who disproportionately have that trade and that's also kind of what you see in the data politically
1: well, and then there's, you know, we haven't touched upon um, to counter a little bit of the stereotype that can come across the personality. It is this temperament that you're born with and you're stuck with. There's not a lot of evidence for that. Your personality at age, too, is really important. I hate to bring it to you. It's not predicting anything when you're an adult. Once you get to be an adult, you know, the, the continuity is much higher and it's more robust. But there's still a lot of changes that happen. One of the biggest changes that occurs, at least in Western countries, is most people lose their openness. So you peak in mm-hmm. openness in college when you're young. Mm-hmm. And and so you and you see that same kind of effect with these demographic trends. Like, you know, who goes to cities? Young people go to cities, right? It's the place there's lots of energy, lots of things going on, lots of opportunities. It's a place where you establish yourself and try to do things um, to, to make your mark, so to speak. And then you move to the suburbs and then maybe to the rural areas where I live um, as you get older. And, mm-hmm. and coincidentally, you're losing your openness as you're going along. And so you see this divide. Which is driven in part by, you know, geographic location, but a lot by dem- demography in terms of age differences. Older mm. people are less open, more conscientious, more emotionally stable than younger people, and you know this is going to feed into those political differences that you see, um, and the demographic differences. And so mm. you know, we've created a culture in which this is true, and and we're we're it has these selection effects, right? You're drawing the open. You know, curious people to cities, and also the younger people, and then you're kicking them out <laughs> as they get older because you know they have kids and they they get in a more stable situation and they want that stability, and so they wander out of the city. Hmm. Um, and it has this interesting kind of selection effect in terms of our our communities. So. Hmm. Fascinating.
0: I was reviewing an interview I did more than a year ago with a woman named Helen Fisher who studies love yeah. of all subjects, yeah. who lives in New York, and. We were talking in the interview I did with her quite a while back about the personality traits of the Big Five that are the highest predictor of one's inability to maintain long-term relationships, and it, it, it and and she spoke openly about the fact that it it, it is an in, it, emotional instability or a high trait neuroticism, and we we talked a little bit about you know why that might be and how. Someone who is experiencing that, right? My understanding is that is a trait. If you're high in trait neuroticism, that correlates with anxiety, anxiety and depression as a state of mind. I, I have to imagine your students are very interested in this, and probably you are too. What advice you would have for people who do have and you know are on it, you know, are self-aware about this, a very neurotic state of mind, and would prefer to. Reduce that as much as possible. I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to speak to that particular um, very unwelcome human experience that I think a lot of people go through, and, and what your thoughts are on mitigating that.
1: Yeah, you know, I always ask my students at the beginning of the semester, "How many of you want to get divorced?" <laughs> I've embraced their hand and say, "Well, fifty percent of you are going to get divorced, so let's think about it. You know, who's more likely to, to get that? And it's the low, low conscientious, high, uh, you know, neurotic." folks who are going to experience that at a, at a greater pace rate. Right? And that's been shown a number of times. Um, it, the answer is really simple, but it might not be satisfying. <laughs> Go see a therapist. Mm. Um, we, we did a, a meta-analysis in 2017 where we examined the relationship between going to a therapist and changing your big five. And seeing a therapist changes neuroticism, a half a standard deviation, which is a lot. Now, by our standards, like we talked about this in terms of gender differences, it changes people more than the differences between men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was bigger for anxiety and anxiety-related traits and for anxiety-related um, treatments, so to speak, the things that a therapist might do for that. And it was true for any therapeutic model that the therapist followed. It didn't matter whether they're CBT, whether they're behaviorist or psychoanalytic person or, you know, mm-hmm. relationships person, seeing a therapist helps. And if you want to, you know, help yourself become less less anxious, find a therapist um, because they could help. I'm not saying that it's a guarantee, um, but at least in terms of effect sizes, it's pretty profound um, how much change you can you can see in that space. Um, so that would be the first thing I'd recommend. Hmm. And then wait the other you know the other the other thing you can do is grow old because, as I said, we we do change <laughs> a lot as we get older, and and we, we one of the most wonderful developmental stories is that we do become more emotionally stable with age and again a, a lot we we change a full standard deviation from when we're 20 to when we're 60 when it comes mm-hmm. to emotional stability maybe even more and you know and you see that older people tend to be calmer they, could, they tend to tend to be less anxious you look back when you're my age and you think gosh I wish I would, would have been like this when I was 20 <laughs> um <laughs> because you know you know how how scared you were at that point and how insecure and and that's neuroticism and it affects your world in, in a you know in a lot of different ways that aren't really wonderful. <laughs> anyway, you know, and I used to joke before the pandemic that we didn't have any real good stories to write neuroticism might play a positive role in selection. But yeah, the pandemic provided one really good answer for why you might want to be neurotic. Um yeah, and, and I think there were some studies that bore out the fact that it was good for people. Um but you know, waiting and you know. Mm. Um, getting the experiences you might have or adulthood accelerated a little bit it might help you overcome some of that neuroticism that you experience, especially as a teenager and a young adult. Um, so those would be the two things i would I'd recommend straight out. Hmm. Uh, getting a good good job and a good marriage, you know are also potentially really important ways of overcoming our insecurities and our neuroticism. We know that if those of you who are lucky enough to be in satisfying jobs and satisfying relationships, Tend to accelerate your decrease in neuroticism faster than the rest of us. That's a great thing. Mm. So you know those those are your recommendations. It's it's silly, I know, because Mm. yeah, please, you know, not only find a career, find one that's really satisfying. It sets a little bit of an expectation. But if you're fortunate enough to have that, and you can get into that space, it does have that type of effect. So those are the things that I would tell. That's what I tell my students. Wait, it's going to get better, <laughs> mm. and these are the routes that you might want to look to if you could if you could find.
0: Fascinating. I know we're getting towards the end of the conversation, and you've got to run in a few minutes here. But maybe to, to close on a couple final questions the the half is if I heard you correctly, a half a standard deviation change on average in people who go. And seek a therapist. What do you make of that? what What is your best guess as to what's happening there to so successfully reduce neuroticism in people who
1: do that? It's a really good question because <laughs> we and that's what we've been trying to figure out um, subsequent to that study. For example, try to figure out what are the mechanisms involved, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and we have some kind of relatively mundane findings, like you know, what a, seeing a therapist does is it helps reduce stress. Mm-hmm. You know, stress is not the same thing as neuroticism. You have a lot of stress in your life for different reasons that are, that can be changed. You know, your relationships, your work, you know, you know, things that happen in your life that you have no control over, you know, therapists can help you understand how to, to wrestle with those things, right? If You're thinking in, in a way that's maladaptive about basic life circumstances. The therapist can help you reconfigure the way you think about it. And, and it kind of inoculates you from experiencing that stress. You don't experience the stress. You don't feel the neuroticism. Um, And so that, that seems to be one real clear answer. Um, You know, sometimes, you know, it gets you just back, you know, a lot of the times when you see a therapist is when you're at your nadir, it's at your low point. Mm. And so they, they can recalibrate you and get you back to a point where you're functioning enough to be able to handle life. And just handling life is really, really key, right? Being able to go to work and be able to function in that space when something might be a problem um, is something that a therapist can really help you with. And so, mm-hmm. if you can manage those relationships, for example, that are challenging, or manage the the difficulties that you're having in your work in a way that doesn't affect you as much, that can spiral in a positive way going forward. So, I think that's what's happening with therapists, at least. Um, I, I I'm a skeptic, so I'm skeptical of my own findings. Mm-hmm. I don't think the effect size is really that large. I think it's mm-hmm. probably smaller. I mm-hmm. think there's some biases in that data. That, um, We've done our own studies and we've found similar effect sizes. I'm still uncomfortable with it. I think there's some biasing factors in the way these studies run. We tend to talk to the success starts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and intervention work, and this is true of all intervention work, the survivors. Are the ones that tell us their stories, right? Mm. And it's true in therapy. It's like the people who had a good time in therapy. You go, oh yeah, I'll fill up that survey again. Mm. And the people who didn't, you know, they're not there at the end saying, mm. "Well, it didn't turn out so well." So I'm a little skeptical that the effect size are that large. I, I want to be more skeptical about the lasting effects. But unlike the interventions we've done for cognitive functioning, all of the studies we've done so far to to, to see whether the changes last have shown that they do. And it's disturbing the regularity that we're finding this. Um, <laughs> so we, we did some really nice work. Matthias Alamond was the person who, who, who led this work out of Switzerland where we did you know, personality, big five changes, using an app. And it was a really nice study because it was um, not clinical folks. And so, so one of the criticisms you have with the clinical work as well, there are people out there, Nader, they're just bounce oh, back. It's not very interesting. So we said, okay, let's try to change people on the big five just by changing people on the big five and they're not clinical populations. So they're not suffering. They're not coming back from their low point. Can you do it? Turns out, yes, yes you can. And so three-month intervention, practicing your conscientious behaviors every day, setting goals and achieving those things, reflecting on your your activities, um, results in the same type of change there. and the, And the change lasts. So they just mm-hmm. did a year-long follow-up where they they asked people to say, hey, where are you at now? And the folks who experienced change kept change in place. And that's mm-hmm. unlike what you see um, for cognitive functioning, where there's a, a really well-known fade-out effect um, that they find. When you see short-term gains in cognitive functioning, when you intervene on kids or on adults. And then after six months, it goes away. So uh, I, you know, it's a, it's a new area. The whole question about whether you could change personality traits is something that only emerged in the last decade or so. And so we're all working through the data at this point to try to figure out what the story is. So beyond those recommendations, I'm, I'm still not totally confident we have um, a grip on what the story is. But it's provocative what we're finding. Now, mm-hmm. And it does provide some hope that if you don't like where you're at, there is potential potentially an answer that, that might be satisfying if you're willing to put the work. In. And I think the, the latter is really important, that it's, it's, not, it's not a simple thing. It's not an easy thing. It's not a fly-by-night thing. You're not going to transform yourself by doing a half an hour daily affirmations and that's it. Um, it, It's like running a marathon. You don't run a marathon unless you put the miles. in. You want to change your personality, it's probably the same. You got to put the time. Fascinating.
0: Brent, I love this conversation. I would love to chat again about all of this stuff. To me, it's one of the most interesting areas of of academia. Um, Thank you so much for your time. I know you got to run. If we could maybe close on just a brief point about The practical applications of your research and knowledge, why does does this information matter to culture, to people in general? I'd love to close on that.
1: Well, I mean, one of the trait domains we study is conscientiousness, for example, whether you're hardworking, organized, um, disciplined, rule following, and the like. What does that relate to? It relates to whether you have a higher GPA as an elementary school student, as a middle school student, and as a high school student, and as a college student. Um, It relates to how much educational um, attainment you um, gather in your life. So how far do you go? You get a college degree, you go on and get a master's. Um, It predicts your job performance once you leave school. So if you are more conscientious, people like you better as an employee. They're going to hire you and they're going to keep you and they're going to promote you and they're going to pay you more. Hmm. Um, Not only that, it's going to contribute to the Let's say your, your relationship, we talked a little bit about this. So the t- big two when it comes to whether you you keep your relationship intact are conscientiousness and neuroticism. If you're high on conscientiousness, you tend to stick with your your spouse um, and you have a stable, more satisfying relationship. You have you have a better social network. Um, people are, are happier with you. We all like our friends who show up on time and are reliable. Mm. Um, and the folks who can't be relied on, it always causes distress, right? That's low conscientiousness. So it helps in your relationships. It helps in your work. It helps in your health. So, we have uh, oodles of studies showing that you have better self reported health and you have better objectively measured health. Um, mm. And so, you're going to experience a better life course when it comes to the simple things that can really profoundly affect how you function, especially in older age. Are you going to have a, an easier, smoother time of aging? We all die and we all plummet at some point. The question isn't whether that happens, it's whether you're going to spend 15 years doing that or two. Mm. And the conscientious people are experiencing not only longer lives, but healthier lives and, and the way they, they go. So here's just one trait domain. Mm. And it affects you know, achievement, it affects love, and it affects physical health. And you know, those are all fundamental things that we all care about as individuals and society cares about too we we every society wants their citizens to have a smoother life that in which they're they can have the achievements that they they set out to achieve and have a life in which they don't suffer needlessly from you know health insults or something like that so if you care about those things which pretty much everyone does then you should care about car changes for example mm. and so yeah there's lots of practical Reasons to care about these things and to try to understand them better, and I'm not saying that intervening on them is necessarily the answer. There's lots of things you can do to make it, you know, you structure society so it doesn't matter as much. Um, for example, but thinking about it and, and and considering it and those those really important questions for society and individuals is really really I think it, it it shows up in the data and it begs you to ask those questions. So yeah, there's lots of pragmatic and practical reasons for why one would be interested and their personality it's not the reason i got into the field i got into the field like you because i thought it was fascinating you know why are we all different from one another? why are you the way you are and i think it's fine to stop there it's a a great way to try to understand other people and understand yourself and if it's if you stop there that's that's fine but there's lots of practical reasons for it too absolutely
0: brilliant i absolutely love this brent thank you so much for your time um i love your work and i hope we get to talk again it was a real
1: pleasure Thanks, Dan. Um, have, a, have a good evening and thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Love to come back if you want to, want to talk. For Would love to. Thanks, man.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.